Well, it occurred to me that as much as I hate to interrupt a worship service to talk about something as silly as my arm, that, uh, that if you have a personality like mine and I don't address this, the whole sermon you're going to miss because you're going to be sitting there going, why is he in a sling? What does it say on the sling? Is it his elbow? Is it his shoulder? Did he hurt it on the Rio Men retreat? Is he on pain medication? Should I be concerned about that? All right, here's the deal. I did not hurt it on the Rio Men Retreat um, this year. I heard it three years ago on the Rio Men Retreat, water skiing, uh, which I found out that I can still do reasonably well, but when I fall, I will then suffer for three years until I finally suffer enough to pay the $4,500 deductible to get my shoulder fixed. So, so that's what I did. And uh, so I'm going to be in a sling for a little while. Uh, I asked my doctor this Wednesday, I said, do I have to wear it when I preach? And he said, oh, yeah. And then he smiled and he goes, it'll help them know that you're human. I said, I don't think that's a mystery. <laughs> I don't think anybody's really wondering that. So if that's your answer, but if you see him, Dr. Caldwell, you can tell him that I was obedient, Okay. All right, well, two weeks ago, again, we started a new series of messages. We're calling it God's Word, Salvation Song, and we're talking about the servant songs of God out of the book of Isaiah. And we started out two weeks ago just by simply noting the fact that God writes songs, which is a way cool thought. Why? Because what is a song if not a window into the heart, into the mind, into the soul of the one who has written it, which in this case is God Himself, These songs tell us, at least in part, what moves his heart, what stirs his mind, what inspires his soul. The music of God's life is, and then they answer at least part of the answer to that question. It's amazing. It's an incredible thought, but it's even better than that because these songs not only serve as a window into the heart, mind, and soul of God, but as we also saw, they serve as a mirror by which we can look into our own hearts, into our own minds, into our own souls, and to discover together whether or not what we see in God is what we see in us. And make no mistake about it, that's the goal. The goal is not in this Christian life for my heart, mind, and soul to remain the way that it is. The goal is for my heart, mind, and soul to become more like the heart and the mind and the soul of God, and for the music of His life to become the music of my life, so that my life starts looking a whole lot more like His. So two weeks ago when we kicked it off, we looked at the first of these servant songs in which we heard the singing voice of God the Father Himself, and who or what was He singing about? Because again, if the music of His life is supposed to become the music of my life, that matters. And we went to the Word of God, and we saw that He was singing about His Son, but not only His Son, He was singing about the mission of His Son. And we said that unlike us, in God's heart, in God's mind, in God's soul, in the music of God's life, those things are not disconnected. We like to disconnect them. We like to have Jesus over here, Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus, my Savior, Jesus, my key to heaven, if you will. Jesus forgives me. Jesus is my comforter. Jesus is my counselor. I love all that Jesus does for me. Praise God for Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. Now, Jesus, we'll put your mission over here, and, uh, and we'll talk about that differently. Now, the mission looks threatening. The mission looks costly. The mission looks risky. The mission looks demanding. I, I actually have to go on the mission. That, that, I mean, that might not be on my agenda. My life, oh, wait a minute, might end up looking differently. It might end up looking differently than anything that I ever expected or imagined. God comes to us and He says, look, here's the deal. Music of my life to be the music of your life. And in the music of my life, it's Jesus and. 
his mission. And that's a beautiful thing. That is a wonderful thing, not a threatening thing. So today we're coming to the second of the servant songs. And today we're going to hear the voice, not of God the Father singing, but of God the Son singing. We get to hear the voice of our Lord, the servant of God himself, who at this point in history is looking forward 700 years, and he is foreseeing and anticipating what his life and mission and ministry in this world is going to be like. And here's the bottom line on his mission and ministry in this world. He foresees that it's going to be very, 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 very different. Very different from anything that anyone in Isaiah's day would have anticipated, from anything that anyone in the day in which he was born in the first century would have anticipated, even different from what we anticipate. And my goodness, we have the New Testament. It's just, well, it's different, and that's important because if the goal is for the music of his life to become the music of my life, well, then here we are again. That means that my life ought to be different in all those same ways. So what ways are those? The Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, sings this in Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 1. He says, listen to me, and then he says something very significant. Notice who he's singing to. He says, oh, coastlands, okay? I got to park on that. I know that doesn't jump out at you and go, wow, that's really huge. So let me explain it to you. God condescends to speak to us through human language in His Word. And He even condescends to take up, for example, the geographic understandings of the people of the day in which the Word is written. And they didn't have a globe like we do. They didn't have a GPS like we do. They didn't have an understanding of the, of the map like we do. They didn't have pictures from outer space like we do. They didn't know where every island and everything is like we do. They looked out, and they went out in their boats, but they only went so far. The coastlands represented the farthest regions of the earth. It's as if the Lord is coming, and He's singing because His heart is for, His mind is for, His soul is for the nations. He says, listen to me, O coastlands. It's as like He's saying, listen to me, all the nations of the world. And then He clarifies it even further. He says, and give attention, you peoples from where? From afar. You hear that? Now, you've got to pause and realize that's different. That is different from anything that anyone in Isaiah's day would have expected. It's different from anything that anyone in the day that the Lord came into the world on Christmas, first time, ever expected. It's different, I think, from what we expect. See, the people in Isaiah's day and even in Jesus' day did not expect that the Lord would have a song for the nations. They feared the nations. They hated the nations. They were threatened by the nations. They labeled the nations as Gentiles, as unclean, as sinners, as unrighteous. The nations were not welcome at their table. What in the world is their Messiah doing singing to the nations? He's calling them to a change of heart. He's telling them and me and you that, you know what? His mission is to everyone. Their expectation was, yes, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will come one day, but He's going to come only, or at the very least, primarily, just for us. And Jesus here is saying, no, I'm not coming just for you. I'm coming for everyone. The gospel mercies of Christ and the gospel message of Christ are to be made available to absolutely Everyone, that is his heart, that is his mind, that is his soul. Here's the question we're going to ask all day. What's mine? What's yours? And I want you to think about that. I had to think about that a little bit this week. And I think that the sinful tendencies of our souls, and by the way, I have one of those, okay? I think our sinful tendencies 
is to kind of say, well, you know, yeah, I mean, Jesus came, and, and I, I'm all on board with that, and, and I realize that he probably came for more people than just me, but primarily it really is about me, and it's about my family, and it's about my friends, and it's kind of about my little group, and it's about us and ours and the way that we like it. You know how I know that? Because you and I think and say things like, gee, it's really great that the church is growing, you know, it's kind of exciting. It's nice that so-and-so came to faith in Jesus and that family, you know, came and, you know, our attendance is up 20% over last year. It's all, I mean, this is all really exciting stuff and I like seeing full seats and I don't really care much for having to park, you know, in 10 buck two. But nevertheless, I can get over that as long as I can still sit with my family, as long as we don't get too big to mess up the way that I like it. Ever said that? Come on, I mean, some of you have said it to me. It's okay. I know what you're saying. Understand that. That's the gravitational pull of our heart. It's kind of like, well, it's cool that, you know, some things are happening as long as it doesn't mess it up in terms of the way that I like it. It's not the heart of the Lord. Or maybe you have thought or more likely just kind of kept to yourself thoughts like, okay, wow, you know, it's good that Rio's out in the community and we're doing different things, you know, with Hope South Florida and four kids of South Florida and his caring place. And I mean, all the different things that are going on in the community, it's nice that we're doing it. And I kind of feel good about the fact that we're doing good things that are helping people practically speaking and all that stuff as long as nobody asks me for any money or any time or any expertise or, you know, any of those kinds of things. And as long as what we're doing outside the walls of the church don't really impact the way that I kind of like it inside the church and the way that I'm served here. Now, you might not have said it exactly like that, but sometimes you think that. Sometimes I think that, oh, good grief, I've got to go do one more thing. Oh, here comes Tom. He's going to ask me about run. And I probably am going to ask you about something. That's entirely possible, except for today you're off the hook. And look, our mission is not to attract a big crowd and grow into some big church. It's not, it's not the mission. And our mission isn't to do nice things in the community because it makes us feel good about ourselves. That's definitely not the mission. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the stated purpose statement of the church. And here's the deal. The question then becomes, what people are we talking about? And the answer comes from the Lord, straight out of this song, among other places as well. The answer is all people, not just us. And not just people who look like us or vote like us or think like us or live like us or... It's everyone. The mission is for everyone. That's the heart of the Savior. That's His mind. That's His soul. What's mine? What's yours? Jesus sings, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, now catch this, called me from the womb. And so He has a special calling... From the body of my mother, he named my name. He has a special name. His name, by the way, in Hebrew is Yeshua. It's Joshua. The Lord saves. He's the one who saves his people from their sins. He has a special name. And like the Joshua of the Old Testament, he comes addressed as a warrior, doesn't he? But notice the weapons that he comes with. It's different from the Joshua of the Old Testament. It's not the weapons of this world. It says, He, meaning God the Father, made my mouth like a sharp sword. His mouth is like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me until I was ready to be unsheathed, is the idea. He made me a polished arrow, another weapon of war. In His quiver, He hid me away until I was ready to be placed upon the bowstring and shot 
publicly out into the world. And that too is different. And that too, I think, stands as a challenge, not just to the people of Isaiah's day, but it stands as a challenge to us today. See, the people in Isaiah's day expected he would come with weapons. Literally. Well, what do we fight with today? What are our weapons? Because I think sometimes we assume that the weapon by which we will advance the kingdom of God, give me some grace here, is a political party or a political candidate or an election or a political action group. And I'm not knocking necessarily those things. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not downplaying their importance. I think they're significant. I'm not saying we should withdraw from all that. It's not my point at all. But what I am saying is that those are not the means by which the kingdom of God is advanced, and they oftentimes are the means by which we drive a wedge between us and the people that we're trying to reach and advance the kingdom of God with by means of the gospel. The Lord comes, and He comes fighting for people, not against them. And He battles for them with the sword of His Word and with the straight arrows of His righteous life. Those are the most powerful weapons on earth. So that's his heart. That's his mind. That's his soul. What's mine? What's yours? Listen to me, O coastlands, he sings. And give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, so he has special calling. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He's specially named. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He's specially gifted. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He's specially protected. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He is the choice weapon of the world, hid by God until that moment that he is to be publicly unveiled. And then he says, and God the Father said to me, you are my servant Israel. You are the one who is going to do what Israel has failed miserably to do, which is what? To make my name known among the nations. It's our task, too, as the true Israel. But the Lord is saying to the servant, hey, you're going to do what they have failed to do. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So you read all of those statements, okay? And if you're following alone, I mean, you're getting kind of excited about what kind of a ministry this guy's going to have. I mean, this is going to be a powerful, triumphant, victorious mission, and it's all of those things, but in none of the ways that you would expect. You would never foresee the next statement. Special calling, special name, special gifting, special protection. The one who will make the nations know the Lord God and in whom he will be glorified. Okay, then you get to the next statement. And Jesus sings this. He says, I have labored how? Triumphantly? No, in vain. He's foreseeing his mission, his life. He says, I have spent my strength for what? Everything? For nothing. And vanity. And if you run to the New Testament and you read about the life of Jesus, you can understand how it is that maybe he would feel this way. Just think about it. Run through it. The king of glory leaves all of glory in heaven, and he enters into humanity as a peasant slave of the Roman Empire and a Galilean Jew, which means that even from the perspective of the Jews, he's second class. He then labors, hidden in the quiver of God, until he's ready to be revealed and shot into the world and publicly, you know, unveiled as the Messiah of God as a carpenter for 30 years. Regular job, regular guy, so it seems. When he is revealed, he is rejected, he is ridiculed, 
He is defamed as a bastard child, as a pretender, a phony, as a blasphemer. Think about that. His own family, the Bible tells us, his siblings, brothers and sisters, thought that he was, quote, out of his mind. And, you know, I mean, if your big brother claimed to be God, you might think the same thing. Now, that changes after the resurrection, but we're not there yet. The Lord was constantly under the attack of the religious establishment, the so-called credible people who were always trying to deceive Him, who were always trying to discredit Him, who were always conspiring to undermine Him, who sought in the end and eventually killed Him. He was homeless, completely dependent upon the generosity of other people. He had no place to lay His head. His word's not mine. And He poured His life into a little band of 12 guys to whom He was going to entrust the greatest and most important mission of the world, one of whom betrayed Him to His death for 30 pieces of silver. So there was really no question in the mind of Jesus as to exactly how much His life was worth in that man's estimation. A number of which abandoned Him in His hour of greatest need in prayer. He told them, pray, and they couldn't even stay awake. On the night that he's betrayed, he washes the feet of all 12 of of them, knowing that later the same night they're going to use those same feet to run away and abandon him, including Peter, who denies him three times, the third time, in his very presence and with cursing. And then, of course, he's arrested. He's unjustly accused, unjustly tried, unjustly convicted. He's stripped naked. He knows nakedness and humiliation in that regard. He is spat upon. He is beaten literally beyond recognition. He does not look human, we're told. He is scourged and nailed to a tree, which, biblically speaking, is symbolic of one who bears the curse of God, which he did, in fact, bear on behalf of all who would put their faith in him. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, and then what's the next word? Just the word. It's why. Now that you can relate to. All of us can relate to that. See, he foresees it. He sings about it. He says, I've labored in vain, and I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That is depth of despair. And yet, then what does he say? Because it's significant. He says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. My God in the end is going to vindicate me. My God in the end is going to compensate me. That is stunning. And I think it's very helpful. I mean, practically speaking, it certainly is helpful to me to know that when I come to Jesus, I come to a Savior who knows what despair feels like. He knows what futility feels like. He knows what nakedness, humiliation, and abuse feel like. He knows what failure, rejection, and betrayal feel like. He knows what all of those things feel like. And yet, He teaches me in His darkest moment who or what to hang on to in mine. It's huge. For he sings, yet surely, notwithstanding all of this, my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. He trusts in God no matter how dark and desperate things get. That's his heart. That's his mind. That's his soul. Pause. You know the question. What's yours? What's mine? He sings this. He says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. 
Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And yet what happens next chronologically in the life of Jesus? He cries out, my God, my God, why? And then he dies. Uh Uh-oh. Because, I mean, at that point, it sort of looks like it's too late and deliverance isn't coming, doesn't it? Until you get to Easter. But that's the way it looks, and that's the way it looks for us too, I think, at times. You know, we are all of us time-bound creatures, constantly, and I do it all the time every week, fretting away about the cares of the day, the cares of the week, the cares of the month, the cares of the first quarter of the year, the second quarter of the year, the third quarter of the year, good grief, the whole year. Painfully aware of the ticking clock, knowing that all of us only get so many ticks. And we feel like with every lost tick, when deliverance hasn't come, it's like a lost opportunity for God or somebody to come along and to deliver us, and the clock is running out, and that delta of opportunity for deliverance is diminishing tick by tick by tick by tick. But what does the resurrection teach us in regard to that? It teaches us that God is not similarly bound, He's not limited, He's not freaking out over the clock. It's not that he's insensitive to it. He just knows that he can extend beyond that. It teaches us that God's purposes and plans for us are not just in this life, but he's working on us for all of eternity. It teaches us that even death cannot stand in the way of the deliverance of the Lord. For in the resurrection, he delivers the Lord. And it's a greater deliverance for He delivers everybody with faith in the Lord. He takes the unjust murder of His Son, the most ugly, awful thing, and He accepts that as the payment in full for all of the sins for all of the people who trust and love that Lord. God works ironically. I've said that a hundred times here. That's the way He operates. All through the Bible, He brings the greatest victories out of the greatest defeats. He brings the greatest triumphs out of the greatest tragedies. He brings the greatest achievements out of the greatest failures. And so then when we come to Jesus, we come to a Savior who knows what it's like to be us. You know, just pile up all your stuff and then look away from that at Christ. He knows what it's like to be you. He teaches you in His darkest moment what to trust in in yours. And he's proven with his life, death, burial, and resurrection that deliverance is coming either in this life or in the next. And that somehow, some way, God will fulfill his promise, which is what it is to bring something good out of every evil, awful thing that occurs to us in life. It's to return beauty for ashes. That's his heart. That's his soul. That's his mind. What's yours? What's mine? Isaiah says this, he's recording the voice of Jesus, and Jesus sings, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, and yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb, see, he's rehearsing all this stuff from the beginning, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. Another difference, just as an aside, the only person whose eyes he cares to be honored in are the eyes of the Lord. That's different. There is one person whose opinion matters more than anyone else, and it's God's. He says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. 
He runs out of strength, Jesus. My God has become my strength. He, my God, says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He's saying, just coming for them, too little. Not enough for you. He says, I make you, I also, is the idea, will make you as a light for who? For everyone. For the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one despised, abhorred by the nation, but loved by God. The servant of rulers, though He is Himself the great King of the universe. And that really is how the story ends. He foresees that piece too, for he sings of it. He says, kings shall arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. End of song. A little different from what you hear on the radio, isn't it? So what do you, what do you see when you look through the window of this song into the heart, mind, and soul of Jesus, the servant of the Lord and our Savior, what do you see? I think we see a Savior who has a mission for everyone. Everyone. Nobody's left out. We've got a Savior who fights for people and not against them. Weigh that out. See if that's true for you. Who picks up the real weapons by which the kingdom of God is advanced, His Word and a righteous life. We see a Savior who teaches us that deliverance is coming either in life or death, and who teaches us who or what to hang on to in the midst of despair. We see a Savior who is familiar with all of our weaknesses, as the writer to the Hebrew says. He knows what it's like to feel defeat, failure, tragedy, etc., and who by His life, death, burial, and resurrection is proving that God will take all of that stuff even in our lives too, and just as He has promised, will bring things that are beautiful out of them. For that is His heart, and that is His mind, and that is His soul, and that is His song. And it's different, and it calls us to be different in all the same ways.